0: Aaron Levy is a co-founder and CEO of Box, a cloud-based file-sharing service that he took public when he was 29 years old. Now his company has a $2.5 billion market cap. But it took a lot of work to get Aaron there, including sleepless nights on yoga mats in the office and a really tough decision to turn down a $600 million acquisition offer from Citrix, which left him with nightmares for weeks to follow. As soon
1: as we made the decision, we were freaking out for like months. And on one hand, like we were pumped up, like, okay, like now we know we definitely want to build an independent company. But on the other hand, we're like, holy shit, what did we just do? What did we turn down? And I was having like nightmares for a few weeks after, like, did we actually make the right call? We can never now go back on this. And so, you know, we're pretty locked into the current path. So it was a pretty scary decision.
0: Levy told us about that experience and more on this episode of Success, How I Did It. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Alison Chantel. Aaron, we are so happy to have you with us today. The first thing I want to do is I want to figure out how someone becomes the CEO of a $2.5 billion company. So I kind of want to psychoanalyze you for a second here. What were you like as a kid? Tell me about how you grew up.
1: Yikes. Uh, Psychoanalysis is not my favorite subject, but I would say growing up I was fairly restless, so had a lot of energy and really liked to... Do everything from start small businesses and projects and was always very curious about just how things worked and why things worked certain ways. And as soon as I discovered the internet around maybe 12 years old or so, that fundamentally changed my worldview, which was like, holy crap, you can be in your bedroom putting together a website and people can go to that thing from anywhere around the world. But overall, just very, very restless, pretty annoying in classes was always just calling out things and probably getting into trouble and stuff like that.
0: You, know, you mentioned you kind of tinkered around with technology from the time you were young, and you actually did something like 15 startups when you were a teenager. So what were some of those early projects that got you on this path?
1: I would hesitate to call them startups. I think they were the equivalent of putting together a hacked-up website on the Internet and then imagining that you had a company. And it was always fun to print out the business card that said you were CEO of a one-person company. But some of the ideas were in high school, we came up with an idea of having a search engine that had randomized search results instead of algorithmically ranked search results. And the idea was to benefit website publishers as opposed to people that were searching. So it was a really horrible idea um, because basically every time you did a search, you got a random result that met the criteria of your search as opposed to getting the best results. And so as you can imagine, not a lot of people went to that search engine had a website at the very end of high school that was a real estate website where people could list their homes for sale. Not clear why I worked on a for sale by owner website, not a particular passion or or interest of mine. So just lots and lots of bad ideas, poorly executed. The good news is when you do that enough times, you start to build a model for what stuff doesn't work. And that hopefully eventually leads you to finding something that might actually work at some point in time.
0: So tell me about the idea genesis for for Box. I believe you founded it with a middle school friend, a high school friend, and a neighbor. So talk about how this band came together.
1: So the band was actually the same band that in high school and even middle school uh, I was doing a lot of these projects with. We all went our separate ways for college and in sophomore year of college I had sort of started tinkering around with the idea of having a service that would let you store your files online securely and then be able to access them from anywhere. So this was back in 2004 And this was at a time where we had 50 megabytes of storage space in our email accounts. And so basically like you could email yourself files, but you could only email yourself maybe three or four or five files. And then all of a sudden you'd run out of storage space. So it was really ineffective for being able to share and access data. So then you had FTP sites and you had USB thumb drives. All of these things were really inefficient. I also had an internship at the same time where we were using some clunky legacy software to share and collaborate. And so between both of those experiences, it became obvious that there had to be a better way to be able to access and share your files from anywhere. At the end of 2004, started to work on this project. Early 2005, we launched it. The first person to join up was, was Dylan, who's now our CFO. And then eventually we were able to convince Jeff and Sam, who run various engineering, and then a big chunk of technology worked for us, then joined up soon after. So that was the founding genesis idea of Box.
0: And so you ended up dropping out of school to do this, but you've gone on to say that college, you feel, is really critically important.
1: Yeah, so I personally was really, really bad at all the academic experiences. My running grade point average in a good quarter or a year would probably be a B or B minus, and like, I was very proud of that. But I do think that education is incredibly important just for us. The, it was so compelling to go out and focus on box full time. I was spending most of my time during school just dealing with issues in box. And so eventually decided that, okay, I have to choose one way or the other. Does this become a side project in college or does it become a real business? We moved into a renovated garage. And then we convinced Sam and Jeff, our two other members of the founding team, to drop out and join us. And we all lived together in Berkeley and slept on yoga mats and really not great living conditions, mostly lives off of Top Ramen, Hot Pockets, and three or four hours of sleep a night. But it was certainly pretty fun at the time.
0: I'm really concerned about yoga mats.
1: My back is now paying the price.
0: I bet. Well, so one thing you said in there that is really interesting is Mark Cuban was an early investor and he invested blind, right? You two had never met. Somehow you tracked down his email. What was it like hustling to get Mark Cuban involved? You were kind of like the first startup in Shark Tank, I guess you could say.
1: You know, if you want to credit us with that, that'd be awesome. I'm sure there's somebody who came before us, but it was actually really random. So back in 2004, in 2005, Mark had actually one of the most popular blogs on the internet. It's still his blog today, but blogmaverick.com. We were actually just pitching him to have him write about Box. And through a set of conversations over email, he became interested in investing in the company. And we never even met, but he did full due diligence. And then our first time actually meeting him was at a basketball game. Or maybe you could think about it as our first like official board meeting, which was uh, pretty thrilling. And that investment was a few hundred thousand dollars we decided to drop out of college and then go and and kind of focus on this full-time.
0: And so what was the product at that point?
1: It was incredibly basic. It was called Box.net, and it was a really easy way to upload your files to the Internet and be able to access them from any device and be able to share them with anyone. Soon after we got Mark's investment, we opened up the service to give you a whopping one gigabyte of free storage, which was actually pretty groundbreaking at the time in 2006 so the idea was hey let's give everybody a 1 gigabyte of free storage and they will eventually pay us i think it was something like 599 or 499 a month to be able to buy more storage space. Obviously, eventually we pivoted the company, but the core was always about making it so individuals could just really easily access their files from anywhere.
0: One thing that you have talked about before is that what you were doing initially was short-term success, and you had this aha moment where you realized, I don't know if this is going to be successful down the road. And you ended up writing a Jerry Maguire-like memo when you were about 22. That changed the whole future of Box. So tell me about that moment and how you realized this and what you did.
1: In any great story, usually there's like three or six months of context that led up to that one epiphany or moment. And what was happening was it was becoming more and more obvious to the founding team and to early employees that we just would not survive if we gave people a little bit of free storage and charged them for more as an independent company. It was going to be too competitive with some of the bigger incumbents. And so We could not rationalize a standalone consumer company. And what was happening was we were talking to small and medium businesses, and they were telling us that they would actually pay on the order of 10 to 100 times more or box if we had just built these additional enterprise features or additional security features. But we realized that we had this unbelievable opportunity where if we could actually bring our consumer ethos to the enterprise, that would actually let us still maintain the original premise of the company, which was to focus on end users like you and I, but be able to actually have a viable business model to go sell into the enterprise. And then we could actually scale the company. And that was basically when we fully changed our approach.
0: We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. You're a first-time CEO, you start this when you're 20 years old. What was the hardest part of getting Box off the ground and then growing into your CEO role as a first-time founder?
1: It's fairly atypical to be you know, 21 or 22 and go after the enterprise because of all the additional complexity and sophistication of that sales process and the amount of sales orientation you tend to need over time. I had to shape my understanding of what it would mean to run a company like that. And what kind of people I would need to be surrounded by and what kind of culture would be created in the process? And how do you balance these two very different kinds of DNAs and company ethos where you have, again, a sales organization, but a very Internet-centric, consumer-centric engineering and product organization? Ultimately, I think the biggest learning that I had was I had to go from a mental model of myself as a consumer product manager to now a CEO that has to manage this complex organization that's going to be pulled in very different directions because of the kind of customers that we serve and the kind of ethos that we have as a company.
0: So as part of all of that and all of those learnings, I mean, you created a pretty unique daily routine for yourself. I think I read that you, you start your days late. You're proof that you don't have to wake up early to be successful. You drink an ungodly amount of coffee. Tell me about your day in the life, because what you wrote in ink was very startling.
1: Oh, got it. I'm like the biggest believer in sleep. I think sleep is very important. I just happen to go to bed late and then I sleep in. But my routine is wake up around usually about 930-ish, check all of my emails, crank through any open items that, that need to be addressed, get ready, come into work, have two to three coffees, usually a full day of meetings of things like product reviews, design meetings, talking about strategy, meeting with some customers, And then around six or seven o'clock when things wind down, that's when I take a power nap, big fan of power naps, just 20 to 25 minutes is all you need. And then you get kind of fully recharged and then get a dinner and then maybe one or two other meetings. And then I have four or five hours to myself, which is when I can think about longer term business issues, write various notes and emails on what we need to improve on or what we need to be working on. And then eventually leave the office around midnight or one and go home and it all repeats. But I'm a big fan of sleep. I highly advocate it.
0: So I didn't hear any eating, working out, extra hobbies, anything like that in there. Do you have time for any of those things?
1: I definitely do. I sometimes choose to skip over some of those things. Usually I don't do anything too much fun during the week. And then on the weekends, go to movies with my fiance and we go out and go hiking or things like that. That was more of my week schedule. And then during the weekend, we'll maybe do longer term strategy stuff, read some books, but that's usually just the amount of business that we'll we'll do on a weekend.
0: I'm glad to hear that because yeah, I had read that you only eat dinner and you don't have time for anything else. So it sounds like life has gotten better now that you're a public company CEO.
1: I certainly don't want to glamorize or make it feel like it's necessary to do all of these things. I don't actually think it is. I think the challenge is that I'm just very excited and passionate about what we do. And so if I can trade off watching a show or working on a new project, I just tend to work on the new project, but it's not a requirement to survival. It's just what I love to
0: do. You went on to make Vox a very large company. And to help you do that, you raised a ton of money. And you had a big offer from Citrix at one point to buy your company for about $600 million. Your board actually really wanted you to sell at that time, but you didn't want to and you resisted. So what's it like as an entrepreneur when something like this happens, and you have this opportunity to exit, your board's pushing you to do it. What was the thought process like? How did you work through that?
1: It was definitely a struggle and I think the board was probably a little bit more mixed so I don't want to necessarily paint it as the board was firmly on one side versus my decision. It was it was a pretty complicated process because we were still relatively young and early in our growth and so we didn't have a lot of data points to sort of extrapolate out and imagine what Box was going to be in five or ten years from that point and so we had very little data to go off of. We were in a very still competitive market with companies hundred times larger than ourselves. And so in many respects, it was a very attractive opportunity. It would have been a great kind of financial outcome for early employees, for investors. And so that was very difficult to think about because on one hand, you had a guaranteed outcome. And so you could take all of the risk off the table and it was staring right at you, right in the face. And on the other hand, you had really an improbabilistic outcome, which is like, okay, we're going to somehow go from being a $20 million revenue company to hundreds of millions in revenue and survive all of the competitive landscape that we're dealing with and continue to build a culture that we care about and want to be a part of and like all of these things where the odds were against us. And it was a couple months of really debating that and struggling with that issue. And I called a lot of mentors and founders that had either sold their company or not sold their company and tried to understand why they went Either direction, and I was getting advice from lots of different great founders and leaders, and the advice was sort of all across the spectrum. Some people said, "Totally sell, you're never going to get better off from this." And some people said, "Hey, when you have an opportunity where you can keep doubling down and growing something that you love to be a part of, don't kill that opportunity." Ultimately, what happened was the four founders. We did an offsite where we hold ourselves up in a hotel room for 24 hours. We decided that we were not going to leave until we had the answer of what we wanted to do. We actually still didn't have the answer at the end of the offsite. So that didn't end up working out fully. But within about a week or two, we ultimately concluded that we didn't want to sell. We wanted to keep doubling down and that we wanted to give this a shot. The ultimate conclusion was when we thought about all the things that we had yet to do and what we still wanted to accomplish, those dramatically outweighed the value of the money that we would get and the risk mitigation we would get by selling. As soon as we made the decision we were freaking out for like months and on one hand, like we were pumped up, like, okay, like now we know, we definitely want to build an independent company. But on the other hand, we were like, holy shit, what did we just do? What did we turn down? And I was having like nightmares for a few weeks after. Like, did we actually make the right call? We can never now go back on this. And so, you know, we're pretty locked into the current path. So it was a pretty scary decision.
0: Wow. You did eventually exit. You took the company public and it ended up being a great decision uh, because you went public for much more than $600 million. What were those years like getting to that point since the, the nightmares eventually subsided and, and you got back on track?
1: Yeah, it was about five years before we went public. We probably passed about three to six months. We didn't really look back and question the decision because even when things were getting difficult, we were very confident in the long-term vision that we had. We've been dealt lots of different blows as a company over the years. I mean, this has not been a straight line for us. And, you know, we've had funding rounds where we got turned down by 20 investors and it was like the final meeting of the final investor where we got really lucky and somebody finally decided to invest in us. We've had bridge rounds. We've had to take loans. I mean, there's been a lot of complexity to getting to where we are. And I think the thing that has gotten us through any issue in the business, strategically or operationally, has just been going back to our North Star and our vision. We think that in the future, there's going to be a fundamentally different way that people are going to work and share and collaborate and want to be able to work with their information and that we have a very unique opportunity to build a company that can power that. And so you kind of have to sort of zoom out and think about the five and 10 year horizon to be able to get through a lot of these difficult times, because otherwise, the pressure mounts in a pretty significant way and you can feel very overwhelmed by the individual decisions that you're making and focusing on the long-term gives you the best perspective to make those decisions.
0: I think a lot of people look at a story like yours, or like you know all these other entrepreneurs you read about, as like oh they made it work, they had no hard times, and of course that's not true. I mean to hear that it came down to the last investor after you know twenty rejections, and you had those moments too, and powered through—it's really really important. And also that you sold nightmares after a big decision. I mean anyone I think would, but a lot of people don't talk about what happens right after you turn down a giant acquisition offer like that.
1: For me, it's always been about going back to your mission, going back to that north star as the best way to get through those difficult experiences and difficult problems. And even as we were going public, we were on file to be public for a year where we had kind of a stalled IPO. And that was a horrible experience.
0: It was a long IPO process and it didn't seem like the easiest time because a lot of people were critical. Fox is burning so much money. It's irresponsible. I think even Mark Cuban came out and bashed you a little bit. uh, And it was about a year long. So what was that like?
1: Yeah, it was really difficult. And it was self-inflicted in some respects, because on one hand, we created a harder situation for ourselves, because when you stay on file, you're obligated to remain in a quiet period from SEC requirements. And so we couldn't respond to a lot of the financial criticism about the company. And so we couldn't even really educate the market on our business model or why we felt it was going to work out over the long run. So we sort of shot ourselves in the foot on that front. The challenge was we filed. And about a week after filing, the market for SaaS companies in the public market had a pretty significant correction. So valuations dropped by like 30 or 40%. And so we were getting advice from our bankers and the general market that we shouldn't go public in that period. The problem is that we didn't know if that was going to end in a week or a month and so we didn't want to defile if literally 2 weeks later you know things would recover maybe someday I'll write an ebook on like how to not go public because we definitely learned the hard way of the very specific steps to take if you want to have a really difficult IPO process and uh, and I definitely would advise people to learn from, from our experience but the cool thing is it forced us internally to really really focus on the stuff that mattered most focus on the culture focused on really communicating way better about what was going on. But unfortunately, we got through that.
0: You took the company public and it popped the first day. Lots of people don't have any idea and are never going to know what it's like to take a company public. So what does that feel like? This company you've been working on for 10 years the day you IPO, and what did you do to celebrate?
1: The challenge with the celebratory side of the IPO process is it's after about eight or nine days of doing 12 hour days of pitching to investors. And so actually what you most want to do is just sleep at the very end of it. I just remember we got to the New York stock exchange. I was the most tired I had ever been in my entire life. We got onto this podium, we pressed a button and I was just like, holy crap, I need to go sleep. We flew back and there was a little bit of celebration at the office, which was exciting, but for the most part, I was basically just tired at that point. And then the following week, we kind of had to press reset and say, Hey guys, we're in a new era. We're now a public company. And there's going to be ups and downs. We need to not treat this as an exit as much as a starting point for a new chapter of the company. And then, you know, subsequently, I would say the actual process of going IPO is probably just a lot more work than it is pure excitement. There's about three minutes of excitement in the initial set of trades. And then you basically just want to get back to work and get back to, you know, running and operating the company.
0: It's not exactly how I imagined it, how you just want to go to sleep. Sorry, but...
1: at least that was my experience. So
0: it's not quite like winning the NBA finals where you like take the plane and land in Vegas for a few hours before you stop back. sounds like it's all work, no play.
1: Well, I don't know anything about winning the NBA finals, but I think there's this off-season period that you get to go through. And unfortunately, in our world, you're back in business you know, a day later, and we at least didn't experience the winning of the NBA final uh, elements.
0: That is very true and very responsible of you. So you've had this dream since you were 12 to run a company. You've done that. What do you do when you've achieved your lifelong goal? How do you keep motivated, and what's your next one?
1: It would be hard for me to say that I've, I've accomplished my goal in the check-the-box way I think it's an ongoing journey and, and an ongoing problem. You know, the thing that excites me is building a culture and a company that hopefully can sustain lots of change and you know, there's a new set of challenges. I would say the goal remains, but the challenges going forward is we're twelve years in. Can we do this another twelve years? Can we continue to scale to the thousands of more people? Can we keep a unique culture that can continue to stay fresh in our thinking and and as innovative as possible as we scale, those are now unique challenges that we're really passionate about.
0: All right. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes. You can also check out more interviews that we've done with the founders of Tinder, Bleacher Report, Warby Parker, and more.